We are working through the Songs of Ascent, the series of psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and we're up to 129. And we come to a psalm um, that we, the kind of psalm that we would not normally spend a lot of time in, They're not typically in, in, uh, in liturgy and other places. There, but it's a psalm that does well for us to take a closer look at, to consider how we would live and face some of the hardest parts of our lives. And as we delve into it, I think you'll see what I mean. So Psalm 129, listen to the Word of God. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, help us to understand this. Help us to see in it not just what's going on, but God, to even begin to see what it means for us. So God, Lord, guide my words, guide all of our thoughts and hearts and minds as we stand before your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perseverance, stick to patience. These are not typically traits that tend to characterize modern culture. But it is what this psalm is all about as a, as a characteristic of those who are on the road of discipleship. There's a, there's a pressing on regardless of hardships along the way, of the obstacles, and even the enemies and the bullies and the oppressors, we keep going up the road. And we trust God to, to take care of things and people that would want us to stop on this journey or, or turn aside. Regardless of any resistance, we keep going. We persevere in the journey, the journey of faith. It, it, it's funny how I, I think our culture often has an image of Christians and believers as naive or, or weak. I don't mean weak in a physical sense. I, I mean that we need to have a crutch to believe in, to make it through the day, a, a crutch that they don't need. 
But I think what we see in this psalm and in all the stories of faith, that the people of God, uh, that, uh, they're tough. They're tough. Just look at the Jews. Derek Kidner, a uh, commentator, on, in his commentary on this psalm says, whereas most nations tend to look back on what they have achieved, Israel looks back on what they've survived. And the famous Catholic writer, Walker Percy, famous, famously stated that he thought the greatest evidence of the reality of God is the ongoing existence, the survival of the Jewish people. Other small, small nations that formed their identity in that part of the world so long ago, they're all gone. The Ugarites, the Moabites, the Edomites, and so many others, they're all gone. This, yet the most oppressed of all those nations still survives. This psalm is likely written as, the, as exiles of 70 years of captivity <laughs> they're still together, and they're making their way back to Jerusalem. And the people of Israel are, are going to be conquered again and again and scattered around the world and, and brutally oppressed numerous times all the way to the Holocaust. I, I've had the, the opportunity to, and the honor to meet a, a couple of people who lived through Auschwitz and the camps. The Jews have survived. And we, the people of faith in Christ, the church, we are going to survive regardless of what comes against us. Not even necessarily as individuals. We know about martyrs for the faith. But even then, our faith will survive will stay on that road of discipleship no matter the obstacles, and we will survive, survive into eternity. This is a song of perseverance, and there's three things to look at this morning. It's an honest depiction of what it feels like when all we're doing is surviving and, and making it one more step up the road, particularly when People or circumstances are, are making it harder. And it also, this, this psalm has a, it has a single word that we need to understand the meaning of that is the key to our survival in faith. And I want to say something about why it's a good song for, the, for us in this time. The second half of this psalm is what is called an imprecatory psalm. It is very simply when the psalmist is suffering at the hands of someone or something and is calling out to God for justice and honestly, even sometimes, vengeance. We need to remember that people wrote these songs, real people who had real enemies and bullies and oppressors and, and the kind of bullies and oppressors that actively threatened their survival, their survival as individuals and as a people. And they had the same responses that in those conditions I would imagine you and I would have. The real question, and they're not gonna leave out this feeling of being bullied. And the real question is, what do they do with it? What do they do with this kind of threat, with these kind of enemies? 
Boyce, a pastor, remarks that the psalmist is remarkably restrained in what he asks from God regarding his enemies. He merely asks God that, that their oppressors and their purposes not prosper, that they not be honored by God or by others, that they not succeed, and that they simply not receive any blessing the way workers who pursue God's, God's purposes would. I'm not going to tell you that other psalmists are so restrained. They're not always this restrained in, in some imprecatory psalms. But the truth is, songwriters and prophets in, in many places, particularly in the Old Testament, display the depth of their grievance and their pain. And all of us at times can relate. Now, I don't know much about Taylor Swift. All I know is that she is huge. She has a big, passionate following today. And it's also my understanding that some of her most popular songs have to do with her feelings about some ex-boyfriends. I think you, and they're really catchy, they're catchy songs about hard feelings and betrayal. I think you could call them imprecatory psalms. And they are some of her most popular songs. I, I think our world understands having hard feelings toward people. But what the imprecatory psalmist does is to take all that energy, all that passion and care and love that is threatened or lost, and looks to God for answers. They express their feelings to God, their frustration, betrayal, and anger to God. And the, and the psalmist commends all of it to God's care to sort out what he will do. The psalmist is actively trusting God with all the hardest things of their lives. We see in the beginning of the psalm two images of the futility of the oppressors and the bullies. The first has a picture of harness cords being cut. The images of someone plowing furrows across our backs like, like plows on a field. They are torturing us. But when the harness cords are cut, cut by God, they can keep going back and forth. But no harm, no more pain is inflicted. It's kind of like sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, which, by the way, is never true. But the point is true. They can do all they want to hurt us. They can diminish our faith and get us off and try to get us off the road of faith that we're on. But when the cords are cut, it's not going to have any effect. In the end, they can't harm us or take away our faith. They will not get us off the road. The second image is of grass growing on the roof. Ancient roofs in Palestine were, were flat and covered with a, a thin layer of so soil which, in which grass may sprout. But the sun's going to hit it and dry it out immediately. And that grass, it, ultimately, it's good for nothing. The picture meaning that all that the bully does 
gives them nothing of real meaning or lasting value. The bully and oppressor gains nothing from their efforts of harm. That's what this psalmist is praying for and seeing. We express our frustration with others to God, and we pray that the harm that they seek for us gives them nothing, no gain. But there's a key word in this psalm that that both draws out our honesty and it helps us leave our concerns with others to God, and it leaves us with the strength to carry on. Here's the word. The Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. We have to ask the question, how have the Jews survived all that has happened through the ages? How, how do any people of faith make it? Whether the resistance to faith is, and, and the faith, and, and the resistance to the faithful is overt and brutal, like the direct persecution that so many Jews and Christians have suffered through the ages, or whether the resistance to faith is more subtle. I, I've spoken about before about living in a secular world. Is, it's like breathing air where the, the assumption surrounding us in the culture is that there is no God. That's, that's a constant, subtle resistance to faith to biblical faith. How do Christians persevere? How do we stay on the road of faith, on the road of discipleship? The key word in this passage is righteous. Righteous. The Lord is righteous. The function of the word here is not about God passing a moral exam, although He does. Most of the time in Scripture when it talks of God's righteousness, it is talking about relationship. It's talking about God doing right by His promises and by us. It's talking about God making everything right. Listen to how Eugene Peterson talks about God's righteousness and its effects on us. He writes, the central reality for Christians is the personal, unalterable, persevering commitment that God makes to us. Perseverance is not the result of our determination. It is the result of God's faithfulness. We survive in the way of faith not because we have extraordinary stamina, but because God is righteous. Christian discipleship is a process of paying more and more attention to God's righteousness and less and less attention to our own. Finding the meaning of our lives, not by probing our moods and motives and morals, but by believing in God's will and purposes making a map of the faithfulness of God, not charting the rise and fall of our enthusiasms. It is out of such a reality that we acquire perseverance. I love the book of Hebrew 
of the book of Hebrews and the great cloud of witnesses that, that speaks of those who have walked the hard roads of faith but kept their way until the end. The book of Hebrews, is, it, it's a long sermon written to a group of believers. They've experienced some persecution in the past, but the writer foresees that things are going to get much worse for them, and he's concerned for their faith. So, among other things, he points them to the great cloud of witnesses. They are people who have persevered in faith in the past. People like Abel and Enoch and Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, Moses and Rahab and some of the judges. I hope that every one of us can look at pillars of faith in our own lives, not just biblical ones, but people we've known, people we've known who have been faithful through everything, some of them all the way to the end. I think we get mixed up about these witnesses, and, and we think that they're watching us. The point is not that they have their eyes on us like Santa, like Santa Claus, so you better watch out. We're, we are not who they are witnessing. They saw the righteous God, the righteous Lord, and they were and are witnesses to Him. And they stayed on the road all the way to the end. And this litany of the great cloud of witnesses culminates in the call for us to be witnesses as well, to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The author of Hebrews writes to believers who are coming to a new and greater season of persecution for their faith. And he writes this so that they would not grow weary and lose heart. Rather, keep their eyes on Jesus, the righteous one. I don't imagine faith and the road of the faithful is getting any easier these days. This and many, many other psalms give us direction of what to do with some of the, the hardest parts of the road of faith with the things and the people that, that threaten us and frustrate us, what do we do with them? What do we do with that which threatens to derail our faith? What do we do? And while we do well to be aware of the threats to our faith, whether they are movements in culture, whether they are people whom we would call enemy, or to the one who is called the enemy, while we recognize threats and enemies, our focus is not on them. Our first actions are not steps taken in immediate response to their threats. The first thing we do is turn to the Lord. Go first to the Lord. In full honesty and transparency, express your heart to Him your anger, your fear and frustration, your hopes, your questions and concerns. If you have something to say about an enemy in a situation, go ahead and say it. If it's a wrong thing to say, don't worry. God already knows your heart, your fears, your frustration. He knows your feelings and anger. He's not going to be surprised by your words. 
Actually, he'll honor your faith, the faith of your transparency to him. The best place to take it all is to God. And without doing that first, you're liable to get yourself in trouble. But as you turn your attention to God, this is what you'll find. He is righteous. Where there is true injustice, he will make right what we cannot. It may not be right away. It may, it may be at the end. But all will be made right. And trusting that he will make everything right, including when to be merciful, we can keep moving ahead no matter what is going on around us or to us. We keep moving and growing in faith. And one way to see that growing in faith and trust in God, even with our enemies, is when we come to the place where we can respond as Jesus called us to, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. I was, I was flying back from Los Angeles yesterday, and I was watching the uh, women's singles finals in the U.S. Open tournament. And I, I, I saw at the very end of it, right after I, I saw the very end of it, right after I walked in the door to my home, Coco Goff is a 19-year-old American black woman, and, and in the first set, she was overpowered by Sabalenka, who looked like she was just going to overwhelm her. But she persevered and just kept getting all the balls back, and, and she ended up winning in three sets. Now, I try not to use many sports illustrations. <laughs> I'm a little bit comforted by all the jerseys I see this morning. And I know it's a big day for Seattle and everyone who loves football. I remember these days in Pittsburgh, and I remember these days in Buffalo, and they're, <laughs> they're good days. L.A. never cared. But I don't do a lot of sports illustrations, but this isn't really so much about the sport part of it. Soon after the final point, she kneeled at her chair, clearly praying, Coco Goff did. It, it didn't seem like she's trying to show off her faith. It, it, she just wasn't hiding it. But then at the, at the ceremony after, she said something surprising. First, when she got the microphone, she thanked her family and her team for supporting her. And then she thanked those who said she couldn't do it. Thanked those, thanked those who in their hearts were against her. That she wasn't good enough. She said that those people, instead of throwing water on her fire, they ended up throwing fuel on it. It made her determination and her faith grow. And she's better for it. She couldn't have done it without them. Sometimes our enemies fuel our faith. They send us right to God. And when we go to God and we see Jesus, we see the nature of, Jesus, of God's righteousness. Jesus had a harder road than anyone else has ever known. He had enemies who sought him harm for a long time, 
Satan and religious leaders tried to, tried to trap him. At the end, the whole crowd was shouting for his crucifixion. Sometimes he had just the right words for them. Sometimes he said nothing. But all along the way, it was clear his eyes and his heart were focused on his father and the father's path before him. And he bore every hardship. And in the end, he bore all our sin upon himself on the cross. And he died for us. And then three days later, he rose again. What we see in Jesus is the triumph of the righteousness of God. Over everything and everyone that comes against him and comes against us, including even our final enemy, death. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, these psalms, sometimes they're hard to understand when we see people's anger and fear and frustration. We think, God, how, how can this be an example of the people of God? But Lord, it's not so much that as it's an example of us. But God, we also see them taking it to you and trusting you with everything. God, help us trust you with everything. Trust you even with our fears, our frustrations, our anger, our bitterness, our, our anxiety, our distrust. Because Lord, it's not us who in the end is faithful. It's you. And it's your faithfulness by which we are forgiven and freed from the power of sin and death and from every enemy, even ourselves. God, help us turn to you in everything. God, we thank you for your word. and We pray we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.